servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints, or handed down to the saints. For certain persons, now listen closely, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now last week we learned that Jude was written by very probably one of the half-brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that it must have been something to grow up in that home. But he and his brother James, who just a few books earlier wrote a wonderful um, treatise on faith and commitment. There you go. All right, I think we're ready. <laughs> those two half-brothers had significant impact on the, on the church in the first century. And this book was very probably written, we learned last week, we talked in more detail, that it's probably written sometime between 70 and 80 AD, and all of the apostles except for John are gone. And Jude, already in the first century, is concerned about some things that he's beginning to see creep into the local church. And those things that were creeping in then are creeping in today. We want to look at some of those. Last week we learned... As we looked at what it means to be the called of God, we learned what some of the blessings are, some of the joys of, being, of realizing that we're called in eternity past to be children of God, and he's got a special work for us to be doing in this life, but our future is complete. It's known. This week, we want to look at just a few words in verse 3 and 4. Actually, we'll look at all the, the, both, both verses, but I want you to focus on a few verses, a few words in verse 3, where it talks about Jude is contending, encouraging us to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, or handed down to the saints. And the word contend earnestly kind of has a, an athletic sense to it. I don't know how many of you played sports in high school or whatever. Uh, I did, and uh, I remember the day Maybe not the day, but I remember the time when it became painfully obvious that I no longer wanted to strive for perfection. I no longer wanted to really take the hits that I had to take to continue to put on the pads and play the game that I had chosen to play. And these words, contend earnestly, are those athletic words, or it has an athletic bend to it in that it, it's, it's striving for perfection. Verses that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that we'll look at again here in just a little while point to that as well. That we need to be contending for that. And, and uh, 
Uh, I'm sure that all of us, at one time or another, played some sports. I'm sure that some of us moved along in, in that uh, endeavor uh, and, until that day came when we realized that we no longer wanted to strive. We no longer wanted to do that. Well, Jude tells us that we need to constantly and continually and in an ongoing way contend for or strive for or fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So let's look at today what Jude's burden was. In fact, I'd like to call this Jude's big burden. Because you see there in verse 3 where he said he was making every effort to write them about their common salvation. And we talked last week about the possibility, or wouldn't it be nice to have been able to read that? To read what Jude had to say about that common salvation. But he set that aside because he had a burden on his heart. Something was going on in the local church. And he wanted to write about that. He felt it necessary to write to, to you, appealing that they contend for the faith. And so, I want to look at those words, the faith. Because the, the idea of faith is, is simply the act of the heart by which we put our trust in Jesus. But that's not what's in play here. You'll notice that it says, the faith. It refers not to the act of believing, but to rather what we believe that there's a specific list, a specific group of truths that we must believe and we must contend for. I was reading this past week about a, a recent uh, survey of evangelical Christians it revealed some interesting things. And though I'd like to say it, it caught me off guard and I was dumbfounded by it, it didn't and I wasn't. But here are a few things that I noticed in the survey that I wanted to share with you this morning. Again, this is a recent survey of evangelical Christians. And of those people that took this survey, 30% rejected the deity of Christ. 30%, I'll say that again just in case you missed that. 30% of the evangelical Christians that took this survey rejected the notion, the, the truth the deity of Christ. Forty-six percent, forty-six percent believed that people are good by nature. People are good by nature. You know, the Bible says otherwise. There are none righteous, not one. There's no one that seeks after God. That's what the Bible says. But forty-six percent of these people that took the survey believed that people are good naturally. Friends, it's critical that we understand what it is we believe. That we understand what the Bible says are the elements of true believing faith. And that we learn them, we understand them, and we stand by them. What Jude was talking about here was not something that's outside of these doors, but it's something that creeped into the church. Little by little, word by word, relationship by relationship, question by question, entering in the error of confusion and the church allowed it to happen. A few thoughts about the faith that Jude is talking about here. It's a, first off, it's a faith with definite boundaries. It has clear and specific content. Just want to read a few verses with, to you today. I'm going to jump around a little and you're welcome to follow along if you'd like. But in Ephesians chapter 4, 
You might want to just listen as I go through, but if you want to see how quickly you can move through these, please do. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, Paul says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, this is verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There are specific, clear boundaries, content that you and I believe those of us that call ourselves Christians. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about some really exciting things. In verse 15, excuse me, in chapter 15, verse 3, Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. As of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Foundational. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Another foundational truth that is a, a part of the inside of those boundaries of what we believe. And, and the reason I've mentioned this one is it's under attack. In fact, Paul talks about that further on in this chapter. But it's not just a faith where, that, that has definite boundaries or has clear and specific content. But it's a faith that has doctrinal foundation that results in moral lifestyles. You're still there in Jude, I hope. Look at Jude chapter 4 and the latter part of that verse. Excuse me, Jude verse 4, the latter part of the verse. Jude says this. These folks were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn, listen, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Turn the grace of God into licentiousness. That's a lifestyle. That's, a, that's, that's moral impurity. And they deny the deity of Christ. That's doctrinal foundation. There are two rails to this. There's behavior and there's belief. Jude says we need to contend for both. For both. Belief without behavior is what? It's dead, first off. It's hypocrisy. Belief without behavior is dead. That's not who we are. We need to know what we, we, need to know what we believe, but we need to live it out in our daily lives. It needs to impact the way that we walk, the way that we live, the decisions that we make in our jobs, in our daily lives, in the way that we raise our children, in all that we do, what we believe needs to impact the life that we live, the decisions that we make. Yeah, I know you might find it hard to believe, at least for me, because I'm the, that person that tends to, to fall over onto that side of belief, and behavior tends to try to catch up with me sometimes. But there are those that, that uh, are, 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 are heavy on the behavior side and weak on the belief side. They believe that if just, you know, you just live a good life. If you're just living and, and, and you're morally pure, at least in their, in their minds, whatever their definition is, and, and you're, you're not hurting anyone, you're not making bad decisions, you're not cheating, you're not doing any of, the, any of those things, your behavior is, is good, uh, what you believe is kind of secondary. Wrong. Belief and behavior are, must walk one and the same, must, must walk hand in hand. Belief without behavior is hypocrisy. Behavior without belief is moralism, pure and simple. Both of them are, are areas that we need not fall over or, or go beyond. Well, we need to make certain that behavior and belief 
are, are solid in our lives. And that's what Jude is, is attempting to, to uh, challenge us with today. We need to be certain we know what we believe and the behavior that we live follows the law. The faith that, the faith that we contend for inclu- includes certain truths, things that have taken place historically. And you don't need to turn there with me, but in Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to turn. Hebrews 11, verse verse 3. Look at this. By faith we understand, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Foundational truth. God created the world. And that verse says God created the world out of nothing. That's what the Bible says. It's a foundational truth. We just read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. The resurrection is reality. It's coming. Jesus rose from the grave to prove that he is who he said he was, and he saved us, and our resurrection is assured. You will live eternity somewhere. We talked about that last week. That, 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 that the result of procreation is you and I have the blessing and the opportunity of bringing an eternal being into the world. Those children that we, uh, we, God allowed us to, to uh, parent will spend eternity somewhere. It's not if. It's just where. So the faith that we need to contend for includes certain past events. It includes certain statements of truth. In Romans chapter 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Jesus is Lord. And the impact of that, the reality of that, has to impact our lives. Not only are there assurance of, or, 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 or belief of certain past events and statements of truth, but there's assurance of things to come. There are events that are yet to come that are going to happen, and we need to believe those things. And that's part of the faith that we need to contend for. In fact, I'd, I'd, I'd like to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're chasing around with me in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, let's look at verse 12. Paul says this, Now if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? This is the very thing that Jude is dealing with. Paul's dealing with it too. Already, people are stepping aside from, walking away from foundational, critical truth that is the foundation upon which we build our faith. Our faith is built. How is it that some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? Over in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, listen, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So anyone that's walked the veil and is in the grave, Paul says here and in 1 Thessalonians and in so many other places that they are going to be risen from the dead one day. They're actually in his presence at this moment and one day they will rise again. It's a reality. It's a fact. And anyone that says that, that, uh, that death is soul sleep, that we're somehow annihilated, that there's nothing after this life and we simply need to be moral and, 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 and live a life that is honoring to God, but after this life there's nothing there. They are in error. The Bible says you and I will spend eternity 
in his presence if we know him. It also says that everyone will spend eternity somewhere. So that ought to motivate us. It ought to motivate us not only to praise his name for our future, but to share the good news with those around us. So there are certain events that are true. There are certain statements that are true. There are certain future events that we know are coming. The last one I want you to see is back in Jude. So if you're there already or if you need to, turn back there with me. But in Jude chapter, excuse me, I keep saying that. In Jude verse 6, Jude outlines the future of those who are living those immoral lives that are outlined in verse 4. Says this in verse 6. Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper mode, he, that's God Almighty, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, that's yet future, just as, meaning in the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, as the angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Judgment day is coming. As sure as tomorrow is coming. There will be judgment. There will be judgment for the believers. We, we alluded to that last week when we talked about the Bema seat, the, the judgment seat of Christ. And you and I have an appointment one day where we'll stand and you and I, or individually, I will have a, an opportunity to visit with Jesus about my life. And the, the opportunities that he gave to me. The spiritual gifts that he gave to me. The wife and the family that he gave to me. And I'll give an account for how I use those to further his kingdom, to praise his name, to enjoy the life that he's given me. All of the things that I needed to be doing, he'll evaluate me at that time. And that Bema seat or that judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment seat where we will, it will be determined whether or not we're saved. It's a judgment seat where we will simply be meted out reward or lack of reward based on how we're living and what we're doing and how we're responding to the king. But there are other judgments. The one that Jude is talking about here is a judgment for the devil and his angels and those wicked that have rejected and will continue to reject and will enter the grave having rejected the free offer of salvation through Jesus Christ's shed blood. And there is a day coming, a reckoning that is coming, that is coming one day when they will step into his presence and will be judged and found wanting and will be ushered off to spend eternity in a place prepared for those that have rejected God. Jude says that. The Bible says that. That day comes. And because of that reality, it ought to change the way that we live because we know that that moment in time is in the future and those that we know, those that we love, it motivates us to share the good news and allow God to do the work of drawing those into his kingdom that he's called. But he wants to use us to do that. And so the, 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 the faith that, that, that Jude wants us to contend for has certain future events that we need to believe in. And we dare not allow 
the teaching of other churches or other people or anything to creep into our body that would tell us, hey, that judgment is, that's poppycock, that's not happening, that's, that's, that's just old men trying to scare everybody off. It's not really going to be. Well, the Bible says it is, and we cannot allow that kind of teaching. Jude says we contend for those things. And the way that we contend for those, you know, it's interesting, by the way. I didn't say this before, but let me, rem- let me just remind you. There in where it says contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to whom? Who was it delivered to? The saints. It wasn't delivered to your leaders. It wasn't delivered to the pastors or the elders. It was delivered to all of us. And so all of us need to learn how to contend. Those steps that we're going to look at here in a little while that are practical steps, that, that, that are the steps that we ought to be taking, those are things that each one of us ought to be doing. And yet the elders play a, a critical role, a key role in protecting and shepherding and evaluating the doctrine of the, of the local church and being certain that we're on track and in step with what the Bible teaches. And so as Pastor Luke and others lead us through the process as a new local church of, of looking at membership and leadership and elders and all of that, realize that the safety that elders bring to the body is critical. And so the decisions that you and I have in our future of whom God may have have called and equipped and prepared to lead us, to stand in the gap, to shepherd us, and, uh, and and to doctrinally oversee us is a critical decision. It's not something that's easily entered into. It's not something that's flippantly entered into. And it's not something that's decided based on, on, a, person's, on, a, on a man's stature or a man's position in, in, in the city or in, in his position uh, at work or uh, what his bank account is or whatever. It's through the spiritual gifts that you see in his life, his ability to rightly divide the word of God, and his heart's desire to shepherd people. And as you and I enter into the opportunity in these months to come, of evaluating and preparing and choosing out from amongst ourselves those who will stand in the gap for us. Remember those things. It's not the stature in the world. It's the spiritual gift and the heart of the man in the body of Christ. You know what I find interesting? We were just talking about the importance of, <clears throat> of a church's beliefs. Uh, I had a friend recently ask me, so... There are churches all over the place. How do I know what church to attend? What, what advice would you give me? <laughs> what a question, huh? I said there are three things. I, I came up with this. I, I'm sure there are more, but I thought of three right off the bat. The first is, and we'll look at two very quickly because they're not relevant to this, but then we'll, we'll, we'll camp on the third. The first is, is the way the word is taught. It's critical that we walk through the Word of God. It's critical that people have Bibles opened or apps opened and they're looking at the Word and we're we're walking through this. Oftentimes, in my opinion, that means verse by verse, expositionally walking through a book. Topical studies can come up from time to time. This is my opinion, so don't come and get in my face after we're all done here. You can certainly come and ask. But topical studies can certainly come up as you come across them as you're walking through the book. 
But the best way to teach the Word of God is to read the Word of God and to walk through the book of Jude as an example, verse by verse, and learn what is it that God moved Jude to say. Because that's what we believe, because that's what it says. The Word of God is living and active and sharp and able to pierce heart and soul and challenge us to change. And the Spirit of God came upon certain people at certain times and moved them to pen his word. He used their vocabulary. He used their intellect. He used them at that time. But he wrote truth. And so when we come across something in this book, we know it's from God's heart, from God's mind. And so it's critical that a local church teach the word. I said I was going to go through that one quickly. I apologize. So how the word is taught. Second thing was leadership. Plurality of male elders. I think it's critical. Read Acts chapter 15. Read Acts chapter 20. Read 1 Timothy chapter 3. Read the book of Titus. And see how many times it talks about the critical and important nature of the leadership in the local church. But the third thing, and this is where I wanted to spend the time, the third thing I, I encourage my friend when they're looking for a local church is go online. It's kind of cool that we can go online now and, and, uh, and uh, see most of the churches and see what they're about and see what their statement of faith says. How much detail is there? I know this sounds silly, and please don't laugh at me, but I have this hobby of going to church websites and pulling up their statements of faith. I see some smiles. I want to tell you that some of it is comical, if it wasn't so sad, because the statements of faith are so thin and weak. There's nothing there. Anybody could come. Anybody could lead anyone, whether you've got faith, whether you've, whether you've found Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or not. And that statement of faith is the, is the foundation of that local church. And it ought to be built on this book. And it ought to be detailed enough so that someone can look at that and realize that, yes, you believe that this is the inerrant word of God. And that we ought to open it regularly. Learn what it has to say. In that statement of faith, you can learn so many different things about that local church. And if it's not there, don't be there, was my advice. So we need to contend for the faith. We must remember that as we're doing that, we need to stand against this notion. In fact, back in Jude chapter 3, where it says, contend for the faith once for all, we need to stand against this notion that, that there's, there's this claimed new revelation that comes along from time to time. This was in 70 80 AD. Jude says, it's once for all been delivered. We've got it. It's on your lap, folks. No new revelation. And the shipwreck that's been caused by men and women saying that they've got new revelation from God is well known. Whether it's, whether it's Mary Baker Eddy, whether it's Joseph Smith, whether it's the Way International, all of the cults, maybe not all of them, but the majority of the cults that we are aware of, what is the first thing they set aside? They set aside the clear teaching of the scripture, most often concerning the deity of Christ. Most often. 
Jude says this faith has been delivered once for all. Jesus confirmed it in John chapter 14. Paul points it out in Galatians chapter 1, and let me read that one to you. Galatians chapter 1, and I'll read from verse 6 and following. Listen to what Paul says. I'm amazed that you so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, that includes him, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, he is to be accursed. You hear that? Verse 9. As we've said before, So I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. Folks, all those names I just mentioned preached a gospel that was contrary to the word of God. God says they're accursed. They're not to be followed. The key today is, and we'll look at this several more times, the key today is, can you and can I go to the word and be able to discern that? That's the critical part. We've got to grow and understand his word to where we can be able to do that. So, back in Jude. Look at verse 3 and 4 with me again. Because here, we've alluded to them a, a, a moment ago, and I want to look at them a little more deeply. I think we have time to do all of this, so let me begin and we'll see. Jude 3 and 4, mainly the latter part of verse 4 where it says, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude points out there are two basic false teachings that we need to contend with. The first false teaching is that false teachers sanction immoral behavior. You know, Paul has something to say about this. I'd be remiss if I didn't read this to you. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in the newness of life. Are we to continue in sin because we've received grace? Paul says, absolutely not. And by the way, the baptism that's listed here is not water baptism, it's spirit baptism, the baptism that saves us. Paul, like Jude, is very concerned about people believing that because they have grace that is without boundary, Somehow they can continue to live however they choose. Jude calls it licentiousness. Paul says, may it never be. Peter got wound up about it as well. Look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. What's that mean? 
It means that the immorality, the licentiousness, the sensual living that these false teachers bring into the church is something that is to be rejected. It's the behavior side of that belief in behavior. Jude is very clear. We read verses 6 and 7 of, chapter, uh, of, of Jude. Jude is very clear what's going to happen and what awaits those who live those kinds of lives. An eternity of separation from God. So that's the first false teaching that these false teachers bring into the church. The second false teaching is there in the latter part of verse 4 in Jude. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that it's often the case? One of the first things that false teachers and false, false, false uh, groups, those that are cults, often set aside is the deity of Christ. I find it interesting that our Lord's deity is often the focus of those false teachers, even in the face of such clear teaching from Scripture. Agreed? Matthew chapter 1. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Clear enough? God wrote himself in human flesh. Jesus Christ is God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. These are just a few. John chapter 8. <laughs> Jesus was just ending a, an argument with, the, with, the, with those of the, of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And what did he say? He said, before Abraham was, I am. What did the Jews do? They said, well, okay, that's good. No. They picked up stones. Why? Because they knew exactly what he was saying. He equated himself with God. It's like, it's like two rails of the train track. Belief and behavior. Both are necessary. The train's not going anywhere. The faith that we contend for is both doctrinally foundational and morally obligatory. Belief and behavior. One affects the other. And that's what Jude was wanting us to contend for. So as you would expect... I think we've got time. As you would expect, Paul, and, and, and Paul is right on track with what Jude is saying. Let me just read a few verses that of, 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 uh, from Paul's pen that drive us in the same direction about contending. I'm going to read these again for you, though you've heard them already this morning. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Are you running to win? Well, run to win. We're going to talk about some practical ways to do that here in just a moment. Over in Philippians, Paul has a similar challenge. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. If I could find it. Here we go. Philippians 1, 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I'll hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Same words. Stand firm. Strive together. It's a local church statement there, folks. 
can't strive alone. I mean, you can and need to be involved in those things individually in your own quiet time. But then when we come together, we strive together. That's what makes us stronger. And then Paul, to his young charge, Timothy, had these words to say. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, let's look at verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul challenged and charged Timothy to do the same thing. To contend for the faith. Stand strong. Know what you believe. And live that belief out. So back in Jude, practically how do we do all of this? Doctrinally, theologically, that was a fun study. (laughs) But what do we do? How do we do this? How do we contend for the faith? This is not a roll up your sleeves thing and, and fight. That's not what he's saying. Back in Jude, look at verse 20, if you would with me. I'm going to read them, and then we're going to look at four ways. Four ways that Jude challenges us practically to learn how to contend for the faith. Jude chapter, excuse me, Jude verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. It's not by being argumentative with the wayward or the lost or the false teachers necessarily. Some of us need to do that. And if they want to confront, and if, they, if, if that opportunity uh, arises for, for conversation... We certainly need to take advantage of that. But this is not a, a, a proof text for apologetics, necessarily. There's a certain place for correcting. There's a certain place for confrontation. But Jude points out several steps that we ought to be doing that will help us contend for the faith. And the first one is the very first part of verse 20. Do you see it there? But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Step one. If you normally write things down, this is the time to start writing. (laughs) Step one, build yourself up in the faith. How's your time in the Word? Your ability to protect your family and yourself from false teachers in our society and those that are knocking on your door is directly related to your time in the Word and your time being sharpened by your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so your time in the Word is critical. And your time with the body of Christ is critical. For your strength and your ability to develop so that you can stand and be able to contend. That's where it happens. It doesn't happen in a vacuum by yourself, though that's important. It doesn't happen when you come in with the body and you haven't looked at your Bible all week long. Both of those things need to happen in concert with one another. Spending time in the Word individually. Spending time in the Word in small groups. Spending time in the Word with the body of Christ. Learning the foundational truths that we, we, we stand on. Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. 
those things that are undeniable and we will not give up on. Learn what those are. When someone says, I don't know if I believe in the, in the deity of Christ, then you'll be ready to say, well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Matthew 1 says that he'll be called Emmanuel. And that translated means God with us, and you can go through those things. <laughs> but you'll be able to do that when you hold fast the word, when you build yourself up in the word. Second thing he tells us, Building yourselves up in, the most holy, in your most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Oh, before that, before we move to that, I wanted to make one more point about building yourself up in the faith. Building yourself up in the Word. Paul commended some folks back in the book of Acts. And I, 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 re- I remembered this this morning and I wanted to be certain that I mentioned it. In Acts chapter 16, <clears throat> Paul says this to, uh, about a group of people that he had just met. In Acts chapter 16, he got kind of run out of town from Thessalonica. And the brethren there put him on a ship, and he ended up in Berea. And in Acts chapter 17, it says this, that he went to the synagogue, which was his habit, and he shared the word, and he, told, he shared what Jesus Christ had done. And he shared where they could find it in the Old Testament, of who he was and what he had accomplished. And Acts chapter 17, verse 11 says this, Though these were more noble-minded, these meaning the people in Berea, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Is that cool? The Bereans listened to Paul and said, hmm, that's interesting. Let's just go see if what the Bible says about that. And they examined the scripture and Paul commended them. Why? He might have said, I'm an apostle. Can't you just listen to me? Don't you know who I am? No, he said, that was noble-minded. Because they went back to the foundation of their faith. And they made certain that what Paul was saying was accurate. We all ought to do that. When you hear something on Sunday morning or in your Bible study or or whenever, ask. We ought to ask. I didn't get that. Or, I didn't see that. Can you explain that for me? Ask the questions. That's being noble-minded and being certain that you understand what the Word of God teaches so that it impacts your life. Now we can move on to number two. (laughs) Praying in the Holy Spirit. That simply means praying under His direction. It does not mean what many teach today, that there's this special prayer language that's A language that you've never learned. That is not what it's saying. It is saying praying in the Holy Spirit meaning under his direction. In fact, one of my favorite verses that I like to share with folks is over in Romans chapter 8 verse 26 where he says this, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What does that mean? It means that prayer is hard work. It's not this flippant activity where, hey Lord, how you doing? Thank you for forgiving my sin. And uh, oh, by the way, I need these few things. Prayer is work. Prayer is time. Prayer is heartbreak. Time on your knees or standing or walking or sitting on the bed or in your favorite chair, wherever it's at is irrelevant. 
What's relevant is, is it's work. Paul says, pray in the Spirit. Tap into the Holy Spirit who lives in you, believer. And Romans tells us that he prays for us. At times, when you're so broken and so concerned and so worried, small w, <laughs> and, 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 and don't know where to turn, Romans says he'll pray for you with groanings that are too deep for words. You don't know what to say. All you know is you're broken. The Bible says, at that moment, and always, the Spirit will pray for you and bring your needs before the, before the Father in a way that will move his hand. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Number three, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Simply put, it means living by faith and obedience. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in his love. As what? As I have kept his commandments and abide in my Father's love. So the, the critical part about abiding in, in, in God's love, keeping ourselves in God's love, is understanding and, and, and applying his word. Reading it, saying, Lord, I'm not sure how to do this, but I'm going to do it. If you keep his commandments, you'll abide in his love. And on a related note, by the way, New Testament is very clear that um, a lot of the ways that we see that we're abiding in his love is how we treat one another. First Peter says that fervently, we ought to fervently love one another from the heart. Fervently love one another. Obviously, we do that with the folks in our home. But this is talking about you loving me and me loving you in a way that edifies and builds up and causes the body to be stronger. Keep yourself in God's love seen in your commitment to <clears throat> keep his commandments and your love of the body of Christ. And then, fourthly, keep yourselves in the love of God in the latter part of verse 21, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. That simply means living every moment expecting Christ's return. Do you expect Jesus to return today? Hmm. Are you living as if he will? That's what he's saying. Expectantly live, knowing at any moment Jesus could return. <laughs> Talk about a motivation for righteous living. Why can we do all of those things? Let me close with these words because we've gone over just a bit. Why can we do all of these things? Look at the joyous verse, verse 24. Jude says this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless <laughs> with great joy. I'd encourage you to ponder that verse. Think about what he's saying. That God works in our lives, does all that is required to keep us from stumbling in this life and one day, we will stand in his presence blameless. Not because of how you lived, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. 
And not only will you stand before him blameless, you'll do it with great joy. Can you imagine? Standing before the creator God, holy, perfect, righteous, and he smiles and says, welcome. I have loved you for eternity past, and I will love you forever. I came and I walked the earth and I lived and I died for you. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. And then verse 25, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forevermore. That's the God we serve. We're being kept, we're being kept by the power of the Creator God for a day yet future when we will stand in His presence blameless. When we stumble, He picks us up. Because we will. We will. That's just the fact that we're living in a sinful world and it impacts us. We're doing our best. Sanctification is finding its root and finding its process and we're, we're, we're being more successful each and every day. But we do from time to time slip and fall and he picks us up and he dusts us off and he sets us back on the path. He's able to keep us from stumbling so that one day we stand in the presence of his, of his glory, blameless with great joy. Do you like old hymns? I love old hymns. Jonathan, thank you for the music this morning. Let's see that first one. <laughs> One of my favorites is this. Actually, I say that all the time. I have like hundreds of favorites. But listen to these words. This is the hymn, I know whom I have believed. If I start crying, just wait for a moment or two. I'll stop <clears throat> and then we'll continue on, okay? I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through his word, creating faith in him. I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me, of weary days or golden days, before his face I see. I know not when the Lord may come. This is my favorite one. I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the veil with him or meet him in the air. But I know, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Do you know who you believed? Are you working at understanding the doctrinal foundations that are unmoving, non-negotiable, that you stand on, believer? And just as importantly, does that motivate you to live a life as best you can, full of the Spirit, righteously impacting the world around you? If we're to contend for the faith, that's what we'll look like.
And that's what God wants to do in our lives. Pray with me, please. Father, the words of Jude resonate uh, in our minds today. We want to be those folks that stand for the faith, that understand the doctrinal truths that are ours as believers, that we need to stand on, and that we are motivated and moved to live moral lives of righteousness and holiness. We're challenged by that from time to time, Father, but our intent and our desire is to live righteously for you. And so make us those kinds of believers that are prepared in the word and in our lives to contend for the faith with those around us. When opportunities arise, give us the words. But each day, every day, make certain that we are being sharpened again, spending time in your word, praying in the spirit, waiting patiently for the return of our Lord. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ and found forgiveness for your sin, don't let another day go by. Because what we've just described is what he wants to do in your life. He came, he lived, he died, he rose, he returned to the Father. And one day he'll come back. And he wants you to be a part of his family, to find forgiveness for your sin, the power to live righteously in this life. The opportunity, assured opportunity, of slipping into his presence. If you've never made that commitment, make today that day when you say, Lord Jesus, I trust you to forgive my sin. I come to you in faith. Save me. Bring me into your family. I submit my life to you today. And if you've made that commitment today, let me know or let someone around you know so that we can pray for you and encourage you going forward. Father, as you release us now into the world, make us men and women ready, ready to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around us, ready to live a life of righteousness and holiness. And when we slip, we're grateful that you forgive put us back on that path. So as we release, Father, make us that kind of Christian, attending that kind of church, so that we can challenge and change the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name.